Welcome. I hope you enjoyed The Eternal Sailor as much as we did making it for you. My name is Alan Corbishley from Sound the Alarm Music Theatre, where we sound alarms on various social issues through our artistic programming and through conversations such as this that help us contextualize the fictional episodes we just heard in real-life conversation. Today, I am joined by three guests. First is Dr. Derek Turner, who is a geologist and the department chair of the Earth and Environment Sciences Department at Douglas College. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And joined by the writer of The Eternal Sailor, Derek Chan, who has, congratulations, recently been announced as the new artistic director of the Vancouver Asian Canadian Theatre. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. And finally, the director of this episode, going under the protective pseudonym of Locke Yu. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah. So today we're actually going to focus a lot more on the environmental aspects of of this particular episode, which is very, very layered uh, within. So we have uh, the the great honor of having um, Dr. Derek here. Uh, you you took a listen to this episode. Uh, Yes, it is a love story, but it's a love story that is is broken up in and is disconnected from each other. Uh, it's disrupted by multiple, multiple layers of either politics or health or uh, geography uh, and environment, environmental issues that are disrupting this love story. Um, what were some of the things that you kind of just took from it, even artistically or... So one of the things I was hit with immediately with this piece, uh, my first listen right in the first few minutes was, like you say, uh, disruption, right? A sense of disorientation. And I think um, that was really apparent to me that it wasn't going to be just political disruption, but there's temporal disruption that these people are separated and the timelines are a little strange at first. And there's the noise of the mosquitoes and the, the crowd and everything. And that really carried through with me the whole way that, uh, like you said, it's not just... Uh, like a political disruption or disorientation, but there's this environmental uh, disruption and there's this uh, personal disruption, loss of of family members, separation from loved ones, and it all kind of combined together and that the environmental uh, disturbances are really just one part of the puzzle, right? That I, I didn't really expect that going in and it really uh, hit home to me and connected with me too, right? Because I think we all sort of feel a little bit of that in our daily lives uh, these days with climate change, with pandemics, with everything, you know, I think we can all connect maybe not to these specific environmental disasters like magnetic shifts and and uh, hopefully not earthquakes anyway, but just this broader <laughs> sense, this kind of background of disruption that the world is not the way it used to be, right? That we're all sort of existing in this period of change. And that was, I think, really the the main take home for me from this piece. Mm. So Derek, was that was that one of your sort of constructing elements or priorities was to to use the environment as a a metaphor for disruption yeah definitely uh, it's it's human against the universe uh trying to find our places trying to perhaps right the ship uh when the ship is so far off course mm-hmm. and that feeling of uncertainty that feeling of maybe helplessness but despite that we still try we still try because that's the only thing we can do what were what were your sort of um priorities of 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 this piece it's a it's a tricky piece to to convey in audio only 
with things like earthquakes or or things like that what was what were some of your challenges in in creating that in a sonic world yeah because yeah um we're familiar with more um performance mediums or myself uh working in the theater so translating just the audio pieces um what was really important for me was that sense of atmosphere that there was all these things pushing onto these two characters as they made their way to each other again if they did um but yeah it was the atmosphere really giving that and fleshing that world out so that they were people interacting with the world around them and i think now that i think about it a little more the combining the environmental and human and political aspects in the play i think somewhere in me subconsciously was making a sort of a statement that each of these issues are not standalone issues and they're all related and to address one we have to address the others uh for 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 our for our plans to to succeed so to speak like say climate change we can't address climate change without addressing uh the, the human factor and 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 so on we or can't politics or politics yeah mm-hmm. we, we can't we can't address people being displaced without sometimes uh climate change affecting that and in turn that also affects politics because of scarcity of scarcity of uh, uh resources and so yeah I, i think a part of me was trying to say that this is all related and and it's and it's a bigger can of worms than than we can all ever imagine Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've 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 crafted a very well. It's a very beautiful episode. It's a very um, but there's a lot of things in there that that bring it right back to the human relationship and how all of these bigger, grander schemes or or or, or problems or or issues or things that we're all facing right now um, all come back to how does that actually affect our relationships with each other with and how does that break us apart how does that bring us together yeah it, the priorities the uh, of of human existence yeah and also our relationship with the land as well mm-hmm. um i'd like to say all i write is love stories whether it's between people or between objects between people and the land between right. one element of the land and the other it's all just silly love stories <laughs> <laughs> never silly never silly uh but you know speaking of of how the climate and is is related to politics i mean here in bc uh we are in the midst of yet another um natural disaster and state of emergency uh the entire province this past summer of course was fraught with with fires uh forest fires which burned down cities which now of course in the last two weeks have been flooded uh communities completely wiped away evacuated and uh, almost all of our major roadways completely dismantled so we're really in the thick of it like and that of course is is going to affect our politics our budgeting our finances our um and hopefully re prioritize our you know our our attention on the fact that climate change is officially no longer theory um and it is officially present in our lives and to to dispute it is a very difficult 
thing to uh, that's a big task if you're actually an anti-environmentalist to try and convince someone that it, it's not real um, good luck so um derek what why is bc so particularly hard hit uh, as opposed to other parts of 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 this country or this uh, this continent you know I, it is uh, very topical obviously to sound the alarm on these issues uh, right now and, and like you say it's an easy sell really for people in british columbia anyway but around the world right that we're seeing more and more this case this is this is what some scientists have been sounding the alarm for for decades right saying that this is what we would expect with climate change we would expect uh, larger weather events and more frequent weather events and that's exactly what we've seen this year we've seen uh, more intense periods of heat and wildfire in the summer. And then in the winter, we're getting these atmospheric rivers that are passing through, which is just pockets of warm, really moist air uh, from further south off the Pacific Ocean, dumping just incredible amounts of precipitation here on the West Coast. And we've had these uh, weather events for a long time, right? These are not new to our uh, area. But what's new potentially is their frequency and their intensity. There's just more of them. And, uh, and they appear to be bigger too. But this is, again, what people have been modeling for a long time. So, you know, you, we're not the first people to sound this alarm by any means, but it's, it's, it's uh, like you say, hard to deny it at this point when we're seeing it uh, over and over again. Uh, and the consequences of these events, you know, our, our society here in BC, but around the world too, is really set up for one set of climate parameters. Uh, an earth that that doesn't necessarily exist anymore, right? And as things shift, uh, our society has to become adaptable and change with it in order to protect ourselves, in order to to you know thrive with with uh, with nature a little bit. And um, it's it's about to me, it's how fast we can adapt to these changing conditions because uh, right now we're not adapting quickly enough, and this is the consequence of that. Well, is that is that a kind of a theme as well? Is the fact that you know. The internet, the digital world, the politics, the environment, everything is moving so fast, so rapidly that we just are inequipped to, ill-equipped to, to adapt at the rate that we need to. So therefore chaos just ensues. Is that, was that kind of a part of it or, or is that just kind of a, 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 a an interesting byproduct that result <laughs> I like to take credit for that but uh, it might be it might be the play doing doing its own work um, which is beautiful in and of itself yeah <laughs> yeah sometimes sometimes they just take on a life uh, on their own but I'm, I'm, I'm curious uh, uh, what you said just now dr. Derek um, knowing how quickly things are in a way deteriorating, what kind of adaptations can we make at a, at a personal level, of course, but then of course, like at, at a, at a policymaking level, yes, policymaking and advocacy, but just like, just like in also uh, similarly in political movements, like us quote unquote, small people, individuals often feel so powerless that, like, yeah, okay, I can, I can stop using plastic bags and plastic forks and all that, but that's not even half a drop in the ocean. So what what can we do? Well, that's a big part of it, right? Is that I, I think at an individual level, it, it adds to our sense of disorientation that there is no simple solution. These are complex problems. And like the, the play 
kind of illustrates it's not just an environmental problem. It's a political problem. It's a personal problem. It's all these different levels. And so adapting and changing, it's not, like you say, as simple as just one fix. We don't just stop using single-use plastics and and there's the problem solved, right? That's not that simple. It's at every level of our society, really. So I think we all sort of feel a little bit powerless in the sense that we see these changes around us and we sort of feel like there's there's nothing we can do to a certain degree. Now, of course, there are things we can do. There's steps we can take that make us feel more empowered. But when we talk about these big events, floods, political disruptions that kind of we get swept away with, I really do feel like we get this sense of, of sort of metaphoric ground shifting beneath our feet, right? We're in this sort of earthquake, if you will. And of course, the characters may be in a, a, a literal earthquake as well, that we, we don't have any control and there's nothing we can do. And that adds to our sense of disorientation. Right. So when you talk about, you mentioned um, empowerment uh, and, and, that, and that kind of drives us on to, to do whatever we need to do to, to help the cause. Um, <laughs> is that why we're in the arts? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, my um, idealistic side of myself really believes that. Like, hey, we're here to make change. It's going to do good. I don't know who's coming to see the theater, but <laughs> I believe that it's going to change the world. <laughs> yeah. But pieces like this are so important because of exactly what you say, right? Inspiring people to make change and to sound the alarm on these issues is just as important or more important, I think, than than not using plastic or something. You know, like making these connections and and sending the message out there is is so important. And this play, I think, is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I agree. I like in my heart of hearts, I do believe as much as I go back and forth, I do believe that art will make changes. And that's what we can do. It's how we can contribute because we are able to absorb the world in a specific way and then reflect it back in a specific way that hopefully does reach people. And I think that what you've written does that even just as an artist working on it, the way that I've reflected on my own relationship to land and politics. um, I do think it actually does change things and it does invite people to think or look a little closer to these issues. Well, it moves it from being preachy to just being factual or debate, you know, political debates into contextualizing it into real life. And what can this actually mean? And what does this look like for, for the human existence? And I think that's where change can happen. It's, it's, it, it gives people perspective on the realities, on on what this actually could mean for my life, rather than just um, we need to vote, you know, for removing a pipeline or or whatever that is. Um, so that's yeah. So thank you for making such a, a beautiful testament to that. So um, so speaking of rain and. So let's look at the water aspect of this. Like it was, it's so clearly like prominent, the Venice of the East, the, the, the understanding of, you know, the boats and the, and the water and the, the ocean and um, trying to traverse through the world in this, in this um, uh, marine odyssey, if you will. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that use of element there? I have always loved water, especially salt water. I grew up in Hong Kong, so I was by the water since I was born. 
I wasn't in one of the little outlying islands, but I was pretty close to the water throughout my entire life. And then when I left Hong Kong to finish high school in Norway, I was also right at the water in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And then by chance, I ended up on the West Coast in Vancouver to study theater and work in theater. And of course, I'm again, right by the water. And there's something about the ocean and, and waterways that just, that represents travel to me, represents um, growth and transformation, even though I've not taken any of the trans-Pacific or trans-Atlantic ships. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and, and I'm, a, I'm a terrible swimmer. <laughs> but oh, okay. but but I love I love being on the water. Mm. I love looking at the water. I love being by the water. I love smelling the water, and and it it just hurts me to see the ocean not doing well. Um, I'm I'm also a really big fan of marine biology. Um, uh, tattoos. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. For those who are listening, I'm pretty covered in tattoos, and uh, I do have a. Uh, a ship that is uh, very representative of Hong Kong on my hand mm. and a lighthouse right above it and a abstract ocean themed sleeve on my left arm with a flying boat, another boat on top and I have a few marine animals on me. So so the inspiration of this entire episode is your left arm. <laughs> yeah, I just I just write about myself. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, but yeah, and, and there's something fascinating about the ocean that... To me, it's both warm and cold at the same time. Temperature-wise, it, it can get pretty cold and, and, and it's so powerful. The movement, it carries not just water, but it carries life. It carries the air. It carries moisture in the ocean. That whole system that, that envelops our Earth, I, it's just fascinating. It, it's, it, it's so nurturing and it's so furious sometimes and it's so dangerous and i think we don't respect it enough i think we have come to use it as a resource or a tool uh, or or a passageway and again being the silly romantic i'm writing about water the ocean this time with it being so prominent um as as a love letter i guess like always <laughs> hmm well yeah and and what was sort of the developing of the of the artistic uh, aspects of water I mean we, you used water to convey the earthquake as a tsunami you know uh, so what was that like in regards to working with Stefan Shmulovitz, the um, sound designer in bringing that yeah because I think as Derek mentioned like water has so many properties and so many states in which it can be slow moving but even in that slowness that perseverating how it carves spaces and mountains and landforms um, and apparently roadways and roadways mm -hmm. yeah god <laughs> poor bc um but also yeah it's this powerful thing it's this big entity and especially the feeling of jc being in the middle of the ocean that expansiveness and then as we'll get to later also with the disorientation of not knowing how to navigate because the access to that because of the magnetic poles is lost that's a really that's a big daunting thing to be in the middle of the ocean mm -hmm. with really your intuition being the best in the direction you've got. Um, 
so with that, I think that playing with these different um, sounds of water and also the meditative aspect of it in certain spaces, but then also how it does motivate this impending earthquake that does shatter the world and their worlds. Um, yeah, I think that I, I love that this was a love letter to the ocean because I also growing up Hong Kong here, the ocean is such a big part of my life too. And I feel that there's there's something specific about living by the water and feeling that power and having that richness in this story as well as being a big vehicle for how the story goes. Yeah. So Dr. Derek, is that the, the, is the human connection to water because we inherently have evolved from the water? Is that what, why is it that we're so connected to water? Well, there, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but I love hearing these perspectives on the connection, the emotional connection to water. Uh, if you look around where civilizations have developed, water's always been a crucial part of that, right? It provides uh, sustenance, food, uh, travel, but then also um, other factors too. We've been talking about climate change. Uh, the ocean, the world's oceans provide a giant buffer for climate, right? If you look at climates, marine climates, ones that are close to the ocean, uh, they have cooler summers, they have warmer winters compared to the interior of continents. This is always the case around the world. And so people benefit climatologically from the ocean as well. It's like a giant air conditioner and heater for us as well, right? Um, and so there's lots of kind of scientific as well as emotional uh, connections to the ocean. It, it's, again, no coincidence that people have always thrived next to oceans. That's still true today, like it has been through all of human history, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of disorientation... <laughs> built into this piece. I think uh, this usage of the flipping of the magnetic fields, like not that we need anything more to freak out about, about our, our existence in the world and how that may, you know, affect everything. Um, first of all, what, what, what started that, uh, that, that trend in your, in your piece? What made me incorporate the shift of the magnetic poles? In which is real. Which is real, which is very real, but a much slower process and <laughs> much less frequent was, I'm just going to be honest here. Um, I needed, I needed the compasses to not work for JC, one of the characters in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was looking at what major events that could lead to that. Um, and, and there comes the uh, magnetic pole shift. Fabulous. And um, don't apologize for that. Oh yeah. no. And, yeah. and, and from there it, it, it turned into something, something that, that is a little more meaningful that has a little more depth aside from just a convenient plot device. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so Dr. Derek, we're assuming that this thing cannot occur by just um, drilling down and and hitting like a wire, you know, <laughs> you know, like like an electrician, no. you know, like you, I accidentally cut a wire and this has really screwed up the worlds. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is sometimes a myth that we face in our sciences is that there's a connection between some of these systems because there's connections in all kinds of systems. So it's a natural thing for people to sort of assume that all of these things are related. Uh, which is good that people see it that way because most systems are somewhat connected. But 
earthquakes, drilling, magnetic field, these things are are not connected in our Earth. Fortunately, possibly, <laughs> probably, because this sounds pretty catastrophic. The the what you portray in this. Um, but, uh, you know, going into this piece, I knew that there was going to be some play on magnetic poles. And so, to be honest, I was a little worried that we were going to be a little alarmist in this play, right? That that we were going to be sounding the alarm on something that, personally, I, there's a lot of issues to deal with in the world, and that's yeah. lower on the list for me, Absolutely. right? But yeah. having, having listened to it a few times, I think um, it was a great thing to incorporate because it adds to this metaphorical sense of, of disorientation, right? That that we we don't have a sense of north anymore. Uh, so I think it was an excellent excellent choice for those reasons, not just as a plot device, but it really did connect uh, things things for me as far as environmental disasters go. The earthquake, right? The ground moving beneath us, the magnetic poles shifting, and and having a loss of sense of direction. They were great choices, I think. So what? Okay. So just can you just explain? how this even exists and what it is. Yeah, the magnetic field to me. Yeah. Okay, so we the Earth has a magnetic field. It's this wonderful thing for life on Earth. It's created by the swirling of our liquid outer core. So the Earth's core is made of metal. It's a very neat thing to say. We have a metal core um, made of iron and nickel and, and elements like that. And these, the middle of the Earth is a solid core. Uh, but outside of that, that's the inner core. The outer core outside of that is a liquid metal core and we have it's swirling right it's turning like the rest of the earth and there's these convection cells in the outer core and when you convect liquid metal like that you create what's called a geodynamo and without getting into the specifics it creates a magnetic field this is an experiment that sometimes is done at at science centers and and high schools and and that kind of thing you can create one of these for yourself um although maybe not with uh, liquid core but uh you get the point and so we have this <laughs> magnetic field that surrounds the earth and it's a great thing it's used for compasses obviously it's also used by some animals for uh, migrations like sea turtles for example but one of the main effects that it has for life on the planet is it protects us from the sun. So the sun uh, would normally sort of blow away the atmosphere, if we can say that simply, and we'd be bombarded by UV radiation and our magnetic field protects us from that. So if there's a weakening of the magnetic field, it would, which we're seeing in places like the South Atlantic, there's an anomalous area there that has a weaker magnetic field. And so we see there's more UV radiation there. So there's potentially more... Uh, uh, issues with skin cancers in that area. And one of the main issues is that satellites that pass through that area get more damaged by this radiation. So it's a real thing that exists. Um, now, the, the Earth's magnetic field does and naturally would shift uh, and flip sometimes, right? We do have these reversals. Sometimes the reversals are spaced out by over 50 million years. Sometimes they're spaced out by 10,000 years or less. And so it's highly unpredictable. Um, and the other thing we we know about these reversals is is the way they would take place is we'd see a weakening of the field and then it would shift and then flip right sort of like a, a rubber ducky in a bathtub right it would start and then it would flip upside down quite you know relatively suddenly now the rate of that uh we don't have a great uh hold on but we think it would probably take hundreds to thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of years for this shift to happen so it wouldn't necessarily be instantaneous but there is some evidence that it there, some of these shifts may have happened quite quickly in the past. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that something like this would happen. Uh, it's just fairly unlikely. So when it does, in fact, shift, does north become south and south become north? Or is it just, no, down is still down and up is still up. It's just the the actual points of magnetic pull have 
of just reverse themselves, but it doesn't actually change the. No, it actually shifts. Yeah, it switches right over. So we, I mean, we didn't have compasses. The last time this shift happened was 780,000 years ago to give you some context. So it's been a while and we weren't around to have compasses and the rest of it during the last reversal, but the rocks show this. So some rocks, some minerals are magnetic and they point towards north, right? They follow uh, the magnetic field. And so if we look at old rocks, we actually see in places like the Atlantic Ocean, there's these stripes of rock where all the magnetic minerals are pointed north for the past 780,000 years. And then rocks older than that are all pointed south. The Not the rocks, but the magnetic minerals are pointed in the opposite direction. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. So if you look at a, a map on the internet of where these alignments are, you see these, these striped patterns where it goes north, south, north, south, north, south. And that's how we get this, this signature of uh, the magnetic field reversing. So, so if we mine all of those minerals out of the center of the earth, <laughs> what what then? I mean, is that even possible? No, that's not possible. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> the deepest drills we have on the planet have have not even come close to puncturing the Earth's crust. And the crust is just the tiny, it's like an eggshell, right? It's the thin layer on top of the Earth. To get down to the core that's so deep, I mean, our drilling technology uh, will, I could say, never get never get there. Uh, it's oh. It's too far. 500 years from now? Yeah, who knows, I guess, right? Yeah. You never know what the future is. It's the capitalist bring, but... dream <laughs> is right there. It's, it's like the if, core. if we yeah. can just get to the core of this earth, yeah. we are golden. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah? No? No, we're, we're nickel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nickel. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but hearing what you just said, Dr. Derek, uh, the the patterns of the minerals in the rock, that's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful image that we look at the earth and it tells us its story. And it's not just today, 500 years back, it's millennia. And there's a pattern and, and there's such interesting and fascinating. And again, a little romantic detective work looking into something as easily overlooked as the rock minerals, uh, you know, just like looking at tree lines moving moving further further and further north these days because our planet is warming and and it's just the stories the stories our planet can tell us if only we listen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's really it just reminds me of something that really spoke to me in this piece um was with the drilling into the earth and the way that these rumbles happen as transition pieces or bookends to each scene those rumbles felt almost like a like vocalizations of the earth what was very present for me reading the play the first time and then what i've really wanted to um bring out is the life that exists of the earth the earth is a living being mm-hmm. and when you dig deep enough and you hurt deep enough, it's going to call out and it's going to respond. Um, So yeah, like it tells a story. It has a story to say, if we're not listening to it, how is it going to have to shout or to cry out to be heard? Um, So yeah, it's, it's really great what you're saying about, yeah, the story of the earth. Can we listen? And how long before things go wrong? It's already gone wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how much of that, Dr. Derek, is an inevitability that we are just you know, placating to, you know, the politics of it all, but really we're already facing the inevitable. 
You mean with climate change yeah. specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's an action on that, like the Paris Agreement and all of these sort of leadership conventions. And they all, you know, talk to what needs to happen. But really, action is very far behind their mouths. So, yeah, how? Yeah. Question not had. <laughs> well, it's the when you look at the the range of environmental hazards that are that are in this piece, um, all of the ones that that I heard are are ones. Well, maybe with the exception of the Crimson Tide, right? But but all of these are are things that we can't really control, right? Earthquakes we can't control. We can't stop earthquakes. We can't. Well, we can't cause them, um, but not the at the scale that that the one we're dealing with here, like the really big earthquakes. Um, and magnetic pole reversal, we can't control that. We can't stop it. And we probably can't really do anything to start it either. But climate change, of course, as we all know, is one that is entirely, well, not entirely, but it's, it's a lot of, it is our doing. Um, and so, again, it comes back to this idea, I think, of, of just empowerment, that um, we have to find some way of, of feeling like we're, we're making a difference. Uh, because it's, yeah, it's the only, it's the only hazard that we can really address the rest of it. We're just sort of sitting back and, and dealing with, but, uh, you know, a lot of what we see in BC today, whether it be landslides or flooding or all this stuff, it, it all can be tied back to our action. Right. But that also means that we can, we can help solve the problem too, potentially. Uh, so, you know, I do take a bit of solace in that fact. Uh, and in regards to like our local or not our local, our current pandemic, that we're going through, how connected is health or these sort of health risks connected to uh, climate change, if at all? Oh, well, they're, they're inherently connected, right? Um, it's one of the, the scariest things about climate change is these trickle-down effects, these cascading hazards, right? That uh, you, can, you can look at, um, for example, uh, the location of some cities in some parts of the world are, are such that uh, they're in a good spot to not be infested by mosquitoes, for example, which might bring malaria or things like that. And as climate changes and uh, where these bugs can be or where the vegetation is and all this sort of thing, then, then our, our, um, our risk for these diseases becomes greater, right? So it's just a one, another piece of this interconnected puzzle. Um, and some of these things are often unpredictable, you know, that when we start tinkering with these complex systems, there can be effects that we don't foresee. Uh, and the Crimson Tide is maybe an example of that in the piece, right? That that's not something that you would necessarily predict if you have, in this case, magnetic poles shifting and, and whatever. But it's something that sort of sprung out of nothing and is now potentially the biggest problem that these people face in a way, right? Uh, the society anyway. So it's these, yeah, unpredictable uh, cascading hazards that that uh, it part of what makes climate change so difficult. So is that more really connected to urban encroachment? Well, again, it's all connected, right? These, these, these things are all connected. So just to give you one example, uh, urban encroachment in the lower mainland, if we talk locally here, uh, we've paved much of the lower mainland, right? There's concrete, everything everywhere, um, sidewalks, driveways, all this kind of thing. And we have a storm sewer uh, network, which is designed to efficiently get water off of our streets and into the Fraser River, the ocean, right? Get it, get it out of here. Um, and so uh, that will affect things like flooding, right? We, we have a really good understanding that as you, as you urbanize an area, it creates a higher risk for flooding because all this water 
will efficiently drain into a waterway, be it the Fraser River or some of the, the smaller, like the Nooksack River and these other rivers that are flooding currently in BC. And so we create the situation where we have climate change and urban encroachment, and it's created uh, the scenario where this water is being effectively brought to our neighborhood and dropped in our area. And then we have built this city that takes all that water and shoves it into the waterways as fast as possible so that it's not in our driveways and backyards and things. And so the combination of climate change and urban encroachment means that we're going to get flooding. This is what we should expect. And it's exactly what we're seeing right it's now. It's inherent. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So I think that wraps up our, our conversation on these alarms that we're trying to sound on the environmental aspects of the Eternal Sailor and kind of the artistic elements and the the contextualization in real life. So thank you all so much for joining us. Derek Chan, the writer of this piece. Thank you, Dr. Derek Turner. Uh, thank you for your insights and your expertise. And Lokyu, thank you again for all of your artistic contributions and, and uh, expertise. Thank you all for listening. And if you're so inclined, please follow us on socials, which is at SoundTheAlarmMT. You can join our discussion group on Facebook, which is at Theatre for the Ears. And also uh, subscribe if you're so willing. So thank you so much. Thank you.